0: If you're an entrepreneur, you know what it means to take personal and financial risks, create jobs that support your community, and devote most of your time to your business. But do you know how to plan for a successful exit from your business? Do you know who should be involved in creating your succession or transition plan and the steps along the way? Welcome to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. The podcast theme is inspired by critically acclaimed business author Bo Burlingham, author of Finish Big, How Great Entrepreneurs Exit Their Companies on Top. In this podcast, you'll hear success stories of exit plans done right, and pick up practical tips based on years of legacy business advisors' expertise and knowledge about the largest and most important financial transaction of your life. Now, on to the show.
1: Good day. And welcome to the Finish Big Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Dorman. And today I've got a special guest, Scott Duke, British Columbia, Canada. And I'm excited to have Scott on the show. Let me tell you a little bit about Scott. Scott has founded uh, over 11 companies in the past 20 years. He's a lifetime entrepreneur. And in 2018, he and his partner scaled and sold their Canadian property management company to a very prominent private equity firm in the U.S., and after assisting dozens of business owners to transition their companies effectively, Scott then founded Open Road, which is headquartered in Revelstoke, Canada, uh, again, British Columbia. Growing the Open Road team provides valuation, sell-side advisory, and buy-side advisory services for North American companies with between 2 and $25 million in revenue. Outside of working hours, Scott enjoys skiing, fr- riding fresh powder in the uh, BC uh, Vancouver marketplace and catching waves off the California coast. Uh, Scott, you're the first Canadian guest we've had on Finish Big. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Good to be the first Canadian too, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great, great. So Scott, let's uh, let's dig right into it. Uh, I want to really kind of divide this segment up into two spots. One, I'd like to learn a lot about how you built a uh, your Canadian property management company, the process that you went through in regard to selling it to private US-based private equity, challenges <laughs> you face, et cetera. And then I want to talk about Open Road and your uh, your experience on the exit and the buy and sell side. So talk to us about uh, what was the name of your property management firm?
2: Yeah. So we had a couple divisions. It was called Revelstoke Property Services, which is kind of the way you name something to target a geographic area that you live in. And then we had Revelstoke vacation rentals. So the vacation rental business was drove a lot more value. And we kind of like we're on the back of the Airbnb growing and that kind of stuff,
1: but everyone knows the vacation rental industry now, but as that scaled, so did we. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, at your height, how large of a company was that? How many employees, et cetera?
2: Yeah, it wasn't massive. So we had 25 employees. We had about 350 units that are under management. Uh, it's probably double the size now since it's been acquired. We sold it in 2018.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And uh, were you a sole owner, multiple owners? No, this was myself and my wife. Although,
1: yeah, we both had shareholdings in it. So yeah, two people. Excellent. And uh, this was strictly vacation rental properties uh, on one side. And the other side you said was?
2: Yeah, long-term management. What you'll find... And because I grew up outside of Toronto, so this is Canada's biggest city. It's about 10 million. It's actually the fourth biggest city. I just looked this up yesterday. It's the fourth biggest city in North America. So with uh, Mexico being the largest, right? Anyway. Uh, so it's a big city, and that's where I grew up. But the town that I live in right now is fluctuates between eight and fourteen thousand people. So it's an absolutely a bumpkin place. But when you're in a space like this, and you're I don't know similar to like Jackson Hole when it started, and any of these places that are U.S. that are you know bigger ski communities, that's where this community started. And when you're in a small community, you basically have to cover all bases. So we had a cleaning company that was a division of it. We did lawn service, like we did the whole thing, hot tub maintenance, all the rest of it. Uh, but it was probably three or four years in operating that business that I smartened up and decided to actually look deeper into our financials and where are we actually driving profit? And what are we, where are we driving most of the bottom line And the vacation rental business drew, drew 24, 25% to the bottom line. So that's where we obviously shifted our gears to and were like, but let's purely focus on that. And that's where you can really scale. Uh, so we had a long-term division, which did traditional, leasing so think about any anyone that's leasing a place that is renting uh, that's what we did long term management but that mm, 10 15% that's kind of where you might cap out in that that area mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: and uh, so so is it fair to say that uh, Revelstoke would be uh, akin to uh, Jackson Hole way back in the day where it was kind of back a burgeoning market and uh, people are looking for <laughs> ski rentals for 2 3 weeks a month and and so you got some premium rates great locations etc
2: yeah. So the average, I mean, we're now, it, it, that's exactly what it'd be like. It's akin to that, right? And we, the hill wasn't put in in 2008. So that's when it started uh, right during the crash. And so it was sold, then it was rebought, and it kind of had a slow start to it. Uh, but this community, there's more heli-ski operations. If anyone is listing that heli-skis, like we have a lot of Silicon Valley come here, but there's more heli-ski operations here than anywhere else in the world. Like it is wow. by far- it's by far the place to come. So if you're a skier and you're listening to this and you've never heard of Revelstoke before, um, this is where this is where you want to go. So we're we're similar elevation, similar size that you would get at Whistler, but there's three thousand people that ride here a day versus thirty thousand. So you can have a good pow day and you can ski for five days on snow here and and still get powder. Whereas everywhere else gets skied and tracked out. Most places that you go to, so it's a nice. It's not completely unheard of, obviously at this point, but it's a nice place to ski and it's eight minutes from my house. So it's good. <laughs> excellent.
1: Excellent. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so uh, 2018, uh, obviously pre COVID, you built this business up, you looked at your financials, you said, Hey, it's the uh, uh, the short term rentals that are driving the significant margins. Mm-hmm. Uh, what course ad- in course adjustments did you make? And for what type how long how long of a period before you prepared or were looking to sell? Or in fact, were you looking to sell? Uh, yep. Or did someone just chap on your door?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So I the I say this in some other podcasts as I'm on, but people will come and knock on our door for three reasons. There are, And you would have this in your business as well. They're they're forced in that they have a heart attack or they've had some family issue, maybe they're going through divorce and it's forcing them to sell their business. Uh, so there's the forced people. Uh, and then you have people that are focused. So these are the entrepreneurs that are thinking ahead. Like I want to build a sellable asset and I really want to know exactly what I need to do. Uh, and then we have the people that come that are frustrated. And so they're the ones that are, you know, they're having a hard time with their staff. They're having a hard time, you know, managing funds, whatever it might be. It just stresses them on a day-to-day basis and they want to get rid of their business. I was in the latter. So the, right to the end, I was that frustrated entrepreneur. So we had, like I said, we had 25 staff. That's a lot to manage when you don't like proper systems and processes in place. So there was a Christmas that, we, I was underneath a trailer cause we managed trailer parks. So I'm underneath a trailer as well as like high-end homes. Obviously we just the whole everything, but I'm under a trailer defrosting a pipe cause we don't have any staff. And this was three years before we sold the company, but that was the wake up moment where I'm like, I don't want to own this thing anymore. Like I don't want to yeah. be in this position. So I set a goal for myself that my wife and I had, we weren't married at that point, but we'd gotten engaged and we had a wedding date set. And I'm like, I want to stand at my wedding and not think about property management. So I had a pretty hard deadline. And that was also in alignment with like finishing my MBA. And it was a good time in life to kind of change things up. Uh, So I set that and I had about a three-year runway. And it took two years from that point to get the business to the point where it's sellable. And that's where I just started consuming everything. So every book I could read, anything about creating a sellable asset, and just really starting to shift gears in our business to make it th- make it so that it could transfer. And obviously, the biggest thing of that is removing owner owner dependence. So, and that that honestly took two years. It was like the exercise of figuring out what department was the, was doing the best, and you know, really focusing in on margins, and then hiring people to replace my role. And then all that was left when I sold was I was doing a bit of the sales. So we had a general management and I find that that's the last thing that people usually get rid of because the owner is usually the best person to sell their product or services. So they stay in that position of sales uh, closer to the end. And, and that's exactly what I did, but everything else in the business, I wasn't running. So we had a controller that was doing, all, we had someone that was you know managing all the units. We had short-term, long-term vacation divisions, like all of it was covered with bases and different software that was operating the business. Uh, and then, yeah, all that was left was sales and we had a general manager and then, then it was a sellable asset, but it was it was a two and a bit year runway.
1: Wow. Great. So that, I mean, there's a yeah. lot there. So let, let's go back to the initial you're underneath this trailer, <laughs> you know, trying to warm this pipe up saying, I don't want to own yeah. this property management company. What was the process that you went through? Who did you work on? Uh, who did you work on your business with? Or was this all kind of just self uh, self governed, if you will, or self take it upon your own shoulders?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm maybe I'm silly enough to do some of this stuff on my own to be honest with you and this is why things take longer Uh, i probably would have been better off speaking to a different advisor but again being in a small community that doesn't that knowledge base doesn't always exist and now it's certainly a lot lot easier post-covid with everyone doing stuff online to get access Mm -hmm. to people that have more knowledge that are in different geographies Uh, but this was this was an endeavor that i undertook myself from a sale perspective now that being said I'd sold some businesses prior to that. So I'd had experience selling businesses of my own. Uh, I'd had experience, and these are small companies that are just basically transferring owner to owner. Like they're not transferring to private equity. They're not transferring to strategic. They're main street businesses that just transfer to someone else that's stepping into, the, into my shoes. Uh, so I'd had some comfort and experience there. And then I had planned afterwards to have a career in this space of helping business owners transition. So I wanted to go the hard way to learn on my own to kind of grind it out so that I could learn the mistakes. And I know we sold our company for way less than it was worth. And that's probably the reason why you want to work with somebody who is in the space, because you just don't know what you don't know. And yeah. we probably left 30-40% on the table, to be honest. But it wasn't my goal to maximize value to that business. It was to have the story of selling it, sell to a strategic, and also, again, like I said, stand stand at the altar at the end of the day with my wife and not be thinking about property management. So those goals we achieved. Yeah. But no, I I took that road alone
1: and read a lot to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously you've adapted some of the uh, more fundamental elements in exit preparedness that your your education, your self-taught education uh, gave you, but hmm. you went upon this search to maximize value, to decentralize your business, to de-risk your business, et cetera. What was the biggest challenge in there? Was it the owner dependency?
2: Yeah, I would say so. The biggest challenge that any business, and especially the size that we were at is usually owner dependency. That's That's the one that takes the longest. And the reason why it takes so long is because you need to learn how to, you need to You need to become a leader. That's the actual reason why it takes long. I mean, there's certain tactical things that you need to do, obviously, like putting in systems, putting in processes, getting your SOPs, putting everything in the cloud, doing a better job of uh, actually having your accounting set up so you can have good reporting, putting in KPIs, like all of this stuff that we hear about. But the the stuff that's less tactical and more intangible, that takes a little bit more. It's like, how do I, how do I become a better leader? How do we, mm-hmm. I become more comfortable actually mm-hmm. giving up the so-called power that I have to run my business and having someone else do it and watch them make the mistakes and let them learn. That takes a little bit of time. Putting the culture in place that was able to do that, that again, this is why it took two years, right? Like we, you know, we started running, we're running our business now off the EOS system, which you're probably aware of. Oh um, yeah. 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 And so we run off that. Then we were running off Vern Harnish's stuff. And I really like his stuff as well, like the scaling up. So we were running off of that, but it's really transferring that knowledge to the staff so that the whole team can understand running a PL, the whole team can understand where they make an impact in the business, where they're driving value, so that they have the autonomy uh, and the control to actually be at the wheel sometimes, right? That is by far the hardest piece, I think.
1: Yeah, so I mean, You mentioned a couple of different systems there, EOS, uh, scaling up, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And you shared financials. Were you also operating on an open book management uh, style? And and did you see like paradigm shifts and the understanding of the business itself at that point in time and and, uh, be interested just professionally on your opinion as to how that transition in and of itself worked within your business?
2: Yeah. So we probably started doing open book. Actually, I don't know if I ever ran that company, not open book. The company I ran before was a radio station. So I started that one from scratch and we grew this radio station and had a decent sized team. And I transferred that to the board of directors and the executive director that was running at the time he kept running it. And that was my first foray into like building something that was sellable and transferable. Uh, That that business did not run open book. That business twice I had to pull out of the trenches because it pretty much went bankrupt. And Mm that's because I gave power to a managing director to run the business. And then they proceeded to just run it into the ground. And that wasn't their fault. That was my fault. It was my fault because I never gave them the toolkit and the skills to understand how to manage the finances of a business behind the scenes. And when I took my eyes off of it, it just started, it just cratered. right? So that one, I learned the hard way with the radio station. And then this, the property management company, we always ran open book. Like right from the, right from the get-go, the hard part when we started was actually getting clear books. Like it took three years until I actually, like my wife went, and this is how most businesses start out when they're yeah, No question
1: match. about it. Yeah.
2: Husband yeah. and wife team, right. And my wife, she is not the personality type that should ever be doing books. And she was forced to do the books because she was the one that was available to do it. And it took three years for us to get solid books coming out of that business. And it was, you know, also a strain on our marriage. And then we finally hired someone to do the controlling and be a controller. Then, then we really started moving forward because now you had open book policy and you you had data that was coming proactively and was coming every single month. And so the team can kind of hang their hat on it. I love open book, like love, love, love it. It's you have to hang out there. It's higher risk. you know. You put it all on the line because everyone sees when you're up and everyone sees when you're down, but everyone understands how it works. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they, and they understand to your point earlier, the, the direct impact that they make. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you were building this, uh, you went back two and a half years. You said, Hey, I want to out of here. I don't want to be thinking about this as I'm standing at the altar. Did you list the business with an intermediary or did you just seek a strategic buyer on your own? You said you left some money on the table. What was that process like for you?
2: Yeah, I'll walk through that process, but I'll tell people where I really messed it up and because that can probably be some more value there. Uh, so that process at the time looked like listing on a traditional listing sites and that was it. So your biz buy sells, your businessesforsale.com, like that's basically where we put this business. Now, most of companies that are listed on those traditional listing sites, uh, the ones that people most commonly know are usually smaller enterprises. They're kind of under the million dollars a year mark. If you're, so, so that's what we did wrong. That's all, that's the only places that I put it. But At the time that's all i knew so that Mm -hmm. you know you do what you know right like now of course i know about a whole slew of other networks that are way more valuable like you have the axial network you have the surge funder network in canada we have the village wealth network like these are these are networks of higher net net worth individuals that are buying businesses that are a little bit larger and the buyer databases on these networks are much more vast you also have the the Private equity info. You have PitchBook. Like you have all this stuff where you can get access to more valuable uh, people that are going to pay a little bit more for your for your company. I also didn't know at the time that property management companies and, and specifically vacation rental management companies are extremely sought after assets because they're difficult to build. They build the brand, and then once they command the marketplace, it's like they you, you can pretty much keep everyone else at bay. Like we were by far the largest. And like the entrants that came into our space were managing like four or five units. It was nothing that was even going to be a risk to us. Right. So we had a, a severe competitive advantage by having you know our footprint in there first. And we were running forward harder than anybody. So I actually had an asset that was more valuable. So it would have been nice to get it in front of a, a broader group of buyers. And then now what we do for our clients is we'll usually have a database that we've created about 3000 buyers that we could potentially go after. And that's curated like two guys in the Philippines that work full time, just doing that and aggregating that data. So they now we do a better job, but then that was the mistake that I made because I, I, yeah, I was inexperienced. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I can, uh, I can uh, relate with those. uh, Had we done when we were younger, what we do now, but like to your point earlier, I think it is an, and I applaud you. I mean, you really need to go through the process to understand the value that it delivers uh, in mm-hmm. the exit planning space to existing business owners that have yet to be through an exit planning process. So, the whole thought of value maximization. Uh, and then, one of the things I want to explore with you, Scott, is what about like, was there any emotional detachment? Or, I actually had a business owner tell me last week, you know, I. I almost feel like if there's such a word of, of business postpartum, right? If I can sell <laughs> my business, like, and then uh, you almost uh. feel like, uh, okay, now what? And uh, in the book Finish Big, uh, in chapter two, it's it's it, the, the title of the chapter is If If I'm not my business, then who am I, right? And yep. particularly for men, as I've alluded to on this uh, on this on uh, this podcast many many times, you know, men have their the whole identity, uh, you know, maybe a uh, large part of their identity, more so than women by their own admission and that have women as well tied up in their business. So did you feel any type of separation or loss when you sold your business or were you right onto the next thing?
2: Yeah. So I can talk to that. It's like the role identity fusion thing for sure. The postpartum, that's a good way of putting it. I was okay. I, I, I'll walk listeners through it. Cause it's kind of interesting. I was okay when this business transacted because I'd mentally prepared for it for two years. So I was, mm-hmm. you know, knew it was coming. I had a company that I ran in my 20s between 24 and 29. It was called Basecamp and it was a wakeboard facility. And that was my identity. It was everything of who I was. And I put, I don't know if I put more blood into a company than that company. It was just- Okay, No,
1: what kind of company was that again?
2: So we built the- myself and a couple business partners we built the largest wakeboard facility in north america and wakeboarding is like water skiing for those oh that yeah, don't. yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah our boys uh, and done. so
2: in it was a decent sized property like we had 300 acres and a whole bunch of different stuff going on there an old private lake and when wakeboarding was really on the charge which it's not anymore uh, it's kind of passe as far as the sport goes like now people wake surf and they do foiling and all the rest of this stuff but it really had a point where it was you know the category king of board of, of different water sports and so we kind of rode that wave building this business. That one, I had, I had a huge role identity fusion. It was, and I shut that company down because of different issues, but the main thing was owner dependence by that wasn't transferable. Uh, that one took me about four years to get over. And I actually had a fire. I moved across the country from the East coast to the West coast. And I had a fire when I got to the West coast of all the things that I owned from that company to try and purge myself of it. So if anyone's lived through that having having your business be the entire identity and trying to figure out how you break yourself free of that. I've lived through that one. So the property management company, I, I was okay it's, with. It's it.
1: interesting, Scott. Let me just pause there for a second. And yeah. our guest today is Scott Duke with Open Road. We're going to talk about Open Road here in a minute, but I'm just want to just press you on that particular mm-hmm. comment there because you're such a young guy. May I ask what age you are? I'm 42. Well, turning so 42, 42, but yet your whole identity was wrapped up in this business at a younger <laughs> age it, it, where you'd think maybe if you were in there for another 20, 30 years, you could see that perhaps. So obviously mm-hmm. it became a big sense of your, uh, your sense of self and, and four years, you said it took you to get over that.
2: Four years. Yeah. I was a hot dog cart guy in between. I was like, I did roofing and signing. Like I did all sorts of stuff. I did yeah, I mean, the entrepreneur journey is a really wandering one for sure. Uh, and mine definitely, but that was, that was a tough pill to swallow getting rid of that company. And it just took me a long time to get over anyway, that's fine. But I was prepared for the next one. knowing like when I sell it, I need to, it was, it was less of my identity. I made it less of my identity. I guess I was protecting of myself that I didn't want yeah. the business to be me. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I, I can, I can really relate to that. And I, as, as can many, many of our clients, cause I, Almost got it. You almost got to counsel them. This is how you're likely to feel. Oh no, no, I'm not going to feel that way. And then you know the, maybe they sell their business or they transition it, and no one needs them anymore. And they're like, uh, I'm really, really quite depressed, so to speak. Or as I mentioned that yeah. postpartum, I had one of my friends, uh, Michael Klein, who was on the show. I said that that's a good word for it because there's a, there is mm-hmm. definitely a sense of loss. But so let's move forward, Scott. Tell us about Open Road. And you took all these passion, the passion that you had for building. A business. And you, you set out to build both a, a sell side and buy side and valuation firm. How is business at Open Road? How did you get started? And tell us about your team there.
2: Yeah. So, The the purpose of this company and why we're running it is to bring a higher level of service to the, what I call the lower, lower middle market. So for those that are in the space, they understand that. So you have the middle market and these are businesses that are kind of doing 50, 100 million plus in revenue and that you have the lower market, lower middle market. And these are businesses that are doing kind of like the 10 million plus called 20 million plus in revenue. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're looking to service the businesses that are a little bit below that. And that's why I call it the lower, lower middle market. And they're underserved because you have businesses that are being served by realtors that want to sell or they're business brokers and they help out, but the, the, the seal set maybe in the horsepower that they have in those brokerage firms will usually tap out around 2 million in revenue. Right? So there's this kind of spot where maybe people are a little bit underserved that we've identified. And, and that's where, that's where we operate. And that's where we're building our company to, to service. And so on a day-to-day basis, we're just helping people walk through that stage prepare for sale, uh, get their, their company ready to go to market, introduce them to the strategic buyers and make sure that I call it opening the door to the private capital markets. Mm-hmm. So you're selling your shares and if you could go public, fine, you're going to go trade them on the public market, but we don't have that option. So we're trading them, trading them in the, in the private market. That's a, interesting place to trade shares so we help prepare people for that and then we actually take them through the process of uh, of selling their business so that's that's what we do on a day-to-day basis the team here we've got a team of eight we're slowly scaling we're hiring right now we'll be a team of nine here within the month and everybody has their own little department here so we're putting their market like marketing team puts their marketing material together the deal origination team will then like find the buyer uh the the, 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 we have some that just manage the deal after LOI. Uh, I'm doing a lot of the negotiation work and doing that client-facing work right now just because that's natural with the size of our company. And then we a lot of this business is data, a lot of the just figuring out, making sure that you have the right buyers that are coming to the table. So we have two team members that do that. Uh, and then we need someone that's doing ops, just managing the business, which we have someone that does that as well. Uh, and to speaking, actually, my my wife's an organizational psychologist, so she'll help owners with that role identity fusion, making sure they don't have that postpartum kind of guiding them through that. And as well as their team, because you're talking about a massive change in when you change ownership at the top, right? Uh, so we have uh, some horsepower under the hood that can help with that as far as the team transition goes. So that's everything that we we do here kind of on a day-to-day basis, but a lot of it starts with just valuation
1: is it, uh is there any industry specializations that open road has or are you pretty much industry agnostic
2: we're we're industry agnostic if a company is at a certain size and it can be introduced to a strategic buyer uh, but we target 36 industries and we're very much more that White-collar, blue-collar, service-based businesses. So you think white-collar, it's architecture firms, engineering firms, HR recruitment firms. Uh, And then on the other side, it's traditional business service-based businesses. So these might be painting companies, cleaning companies, uh, landscaping companies, excavation, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So mm-hmm. this is this is the business that we traditionally work with. In Canada, we did a cross section of the Canadian economy and it, it very much overlays on the US economy as well. Just looking at what industries have the high, highest profit margins and are generating the most revenue in our country. And then we basically put that data set together and you know, you're well aware of NICS codes, but every business has a specific code as so there's about 2,500 codes. And so we went through the 2,500 codes and just bubble sorted to the most profitable companies that are in the country. And then those are the companies that we're working with. Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. so, so just, um, you mentioned the, the, the relative comparative nature of us and Canadian based companies in that yep. space that you're operating that kind of two to 25 million, mm-hmm. I find that in my travels in Northeast Ohio uh, and throughout Ohio in the the Great Lakes, I mean, a lot of those businesses are really not transferable. Mm -hmm. uh, They're either too small. They have a very flat org chart. There's no, there's never been any investment in people, SOPs, et cetera. It just kind of works because the owner's there and, it, it, is, it becomes a very, very tough pill to swallow for these owners to say, hang on a second. Yeah, you're making money, but you need to reinvest over the next two to three years in order to make this business more attractive. Would you agree with that sentiment? I'd agree with that sentiment. We do
2: anywhere between 20 and 40 valuations a week of businesses that are in Canada. And and the big thing that we look at for those businesses out of the gates is, are you sellable? It's the first thing we look at, we go, okay, before we even talk about value, because if you're not sellable, you can't unlock the value. It's so you aren't holding the key. So there's no, you're, you can't open the lock, right? Uh, so we look at that, we just cross section and go, okay, you're sellable. And we do standard grading because it's really easy for people to understand. It's like, are you an A, are you B, are you C, are you a D? And then from there, we can have deeper conversation. And I would say it's about 50, 50. About half of the businesses that we do valuation on are unsellable assets at current day. Doesn't mean that they aren't going to be sellable in the future. It just means there needs to be a little, a little bit of work needs to be done. And I own those businesses, so it's all good. So I don't, you know, I don't come from on high telling people all your business is sellable. It's like I, I have owned lots of unsellable companies, but now a tool that can just go and you can learn it instantly instead of taking my. 10 15 year wandering journey through multiple businesses that ended up not being transferable they can just
1: tell you right today it's like yep
2: you're not sellable but it's a b c and d and then you can just fix these things and then you'll be sellable
1: yeah so and i think that these are systemic we we talk about it uh with our clients as well i mean it's it's kind of systemic issues uh, of a business in the life and the journey of a business is you know hey my business looks very similar looked very similar to yours right and that's what makes you an authority on on this matter and, and uh, so this is, this has been terrific. Uh, I, I'm anxious to hear a little bit more about life in Vancouver. I've heard it's lovely up there. Tell us, uh, obviously you're, you're, you must be an avid, uh, extreme sportsman from what I can gather.
2: Yeah. The, I mean, this is I. you got a little bit of my background there doing the wakeboard school and like being a, I was a professional wakeboarder for a while. So I have an adrenaline bug. Definitely. And <laughs> the, the place that I live, it, it fuels that it's really good. So you can I have a little rope tow down here, ski hill for my kids and I can, you know, be to the top of the hill in 25 minutes, eight minutes to the base, you know, and hop on the gondola. So that's good. And lots of snowmobiling happens out here and you have to enjoy that if you're a Canadian, cause we certainly get a lot of snow in certain parts of Canada mm-hmm. and then summer's filled with downhill mountain biking, dirt biking, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's a good great, spot. what's,
1: what's the elevation that you're at right now?
2: So right now I'm actually pretty low. We're about 800. Feet. Okay. So, but the top of our mountain is 8,000.
1: Wow, great, great. I was just over in uh, Ireland uh, last week with my mom and dad, and uh, although the peaks aren't huge five five thousand feet, they're straight from sea level, so they certainly are beautiful. So cool. But yeah. Scott, this has been wonderful. Great to meet you. Uh, I know we're uh, also have some shared friends with uh, the folks at uh, Capitalize and Succession mm-hmm. Plus. So uh, shout out to Craig West and and our friends over there. But uh, our guest today. Uh, has been Scott Duke with Open Road in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, in the outskirts, I should say. Uh, This has been Mark Dorman, your host of the Finish Big Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great rest of your day, and here's to finishing big. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes are available. Learn more at LegacyBusinessAdvisors.com or call 330-350-5410. Please be aware, the information in these podcasts represent the views and opinions of our guests and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of legacy business advisors. The content is for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax or legal advice. Always seek the advice of your legal or tax professional with any questions regarding your specific situation.